Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change. Today, I'm joined by an old friend and sister poet, Julie R. Enzer. Julie R. Enzer, Ph.D., is a scholar and poet. Originally from Michigan, she was involved in the LGBTQ community, working at Affirmations, and was a fellow U of M grad, convened an editorial board to foster a true community publication in the Metro Detroit area. After leaving Michigan, she continued her work with the community, working with the Human Rights Campaign in Washington, D.C. She has her MFA and PhD from the University of Maryland. With her fur babies and her wife, Julie now calls Florida home. Her book manuscript, A Fine Bind, is a history of lesbian feminist presses from 1969 until 2009. Her scholarly work has appeared or is forthcoming in Southern Cultures, Journal of Lesbian Studies, American Periodicals, WSQ, and Frontiers. She is the author of four poetry collections, Avowed, Lilith Demons, Sisterhood, and Handmade Love. She's the editor of A Complete Works of Pat Parker, which won the 2017 Lambda Literary Award for Lesbian Poetry, and Milk and Honey, A Celebration of Jewish Lesbian Poetry, which was a finalist for the 2012 Lambda Literary Award in Lesbian Poetry. She edits and publishes Sinister Wisdom, a multicultural lesbian literary and art journal. Sinister Wisdom has been publishing since 1976 and currently publishes four issues a year. The publication seeks to open, consider, and advance the exploration of lesbian community issues and recognizes the power of language to reflect our diverse experiences. Julie is also a regular book reviewer for The Rumpus and Calyx. Julie, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? I'm fantastic, Michelle. I'm so excited to be talking with you this afternoon. Thank you for having me on. There's so many things. I mean, we go back a ways, but there's so many things that, you know, we intersect on, you know, as far as like community involvement, poetry, that voice for the lesbian community. And, you know, you're a Midwest girl, but now (laughs) you're down there in Florida and I'm not mad at you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, good. I'm glad. I I have to say when you said now she lives in Florida, it's still, we've only been here a little over a year now and it still uh, always gives me pause when I hear it. Um, although it is a beautiful place to land. 
being like a Midwest person, and then like you were in D.C. for a while in Maryland, and now you're down there, how's it different? Or, or what do you, is there something that you miss, or does it bring a different, open up a different appreciation for those years as a Midwest girl? Yeah, that's such a great question. I've been thinking a lot about place and location since we moved down here. Um, you know, there are things, there, one of the things that's really striking, although Florida's a little different from the rest of the South in its particular ways, it is also living in the South, um, which is different than living on the East Coast or in the Midwest. Uh, I think it's more like living in the Midwest in terms of the uh, politeness that people have, and the you know there's a general kind there's a general sense of positive regard uh, for people, which I think I found to be a little less present on the East Coast, um, mm-hmm. and I miss that. So it's nice to have that back um, after growing up in the Midwest. So, so that's one of that's one of the things. But you know, the other thing is, it's such a different physical environment, and we're living in a, a more um, kind of semi-rural location, and the landscape is just hugely different than it was in Michigan. I like, I really miss the pine trees of Michigan, um, and that particular smell that you get in August when everything is sort of heavy and summery and wonderful. I miss that part. Um, but, you know, it's a beautiful, uh, it's a, it's a beautiful landscape here, but just incredibly different. The, the soil is so much more sandy. The trees, we have deciduous trees, but they never lose all of their leaves, mm-hmm. um, which makes me like, I always, I feel, um, I feel sad for the trees that they never really get that full sleep that that all of your trees are entering right now. So, but the the landscape is really different, and I think it's going to, you know, shape some of the work I do as a writer um, in different ways. I don't know what those are yet because I feel like I'm still taking it all in. You know, talking to another writer, which I, I always enjoy, is like when you talked about it, I mean, I could close my eyes and I could sort of see, I mean, first of all, I had a, a, an appreciation for what's happening here in Michigan, which was, you know, up until, you know, mostly it was like, oh, God, I got to get off the winter clothes. It's cold. Turn up the heat. Right. And to think about right. those trees and things, that is, you know, that is really nice. And that, that way that it is, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine who, who started in Brooklyn, lived in Atlanta, and she's been in Florida. And um, the, a lot of what you were saying about how that, that politeness, that, that it was in the South, but, you know, and how that felt. Um, do you feel like, even though it's only been like a year, do you feel like, hey, this is home? Uh, I do. I do very much feel like like it is home, um, and I think part of that is the you know part of that is the surroundings. You know, we're on the west coast of Florida, so there's also a lot of midwestern snowbirds that are here. <laughs> so um, I hear, especially now, like everybody's arriving from the north. So I hear my voice reflected back at me um, 
in ways that, that are really lovely and that make it feel like home. Um, and I also feel like it's home because, um, because we've worked really hard to like make you like, that's one of the hardest things about moving, right? You know, is that all of this stuff arrives and it's your stuff with you and you've uprooted everything. Um, but it's not quite home until you put it all together and, and, make it make it home through a series of experiences and I think particularly the first year it's hardest and now we're in our second year of living here and things are returning and we're doing things in a repeated way and I think it's those repetition of experiences that are part of what define home you know I was talking about you know your writing and I know that in the past couple of years, you've written a lot about your pets. And I felt so close to your pets. It merely made me look at mine. My, you know, and I see that you've got a new dog. And does that help, like, get at that sense of home, the fact that you've got your little fur, fur babies there with you? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that is very – well, and, of course, we – um, you know, a part of why we chose the house that we're living in is about having space and uh, space for our dog, Tybee, um, and a safe environment for him to run around in. Um, so that's definitely a big part of what makes it feel um, what makes it feel like home. And, of course, we lost one of our, our pets earlier this year and then rescued mm-hmm. Another another big one, right? You know, I have the big <laughs> yeah, ones. Yeah. They're mm-hmm. both over a hundred pounds, um, mm-hmm. and yeah, that that really does feel, um, you know, both like the animals make it home for us, but also like that we in a, in rescuing another dog, like I wanted to have be the kind of home that could that created space for dogs that didn't have a home. Um, And so that was really, that also, that kind of the act of rescuing another dog also reminded us of this is the kind of home we want to have. Now, you know, you are, and you are involved in community, uh, for lack of a better word, the activism part. And then you transition to being a writer. And do you find that in that transition, your connection, when you talked about the trees, and then you talk about like your connection with being that, that space for the animals, did you find that in making that transition from being like being really a people person to, be, to being able to connect with nature, did that help you open up more as a writer? I think, yes, absolutely. Um, you know, one of the – I think I've always been a more um, internal person, an introvert, somebody um, who who likes um, some solitude. Um, and, it, and so even when I was doing a lot of activist community-based work and was – uh, sort of out in the world in a in a physical way um, a lot as a part of that work. I always appreciated and, and cherished the time to be alone. Um, and I think I was called to the activist work because of the, the injustice that existed in the world, um, which still continues to exist. And, you know, it's always that balance between really 
um, engaging in external ways and then keeping um, enough solitude to fuel the internal fires. You know, um, because I know that that you helped convene this board, and and in fact, one of the earlier memories that I have of you, too, is being at your house in Corktown, and we were looking at what grew into, well, it was between the lines in, but it grew into what's between the lines in. And there is that part that's that part of writing. At what point, because I know I have had that, you know, would do all those things to make that switch and say, you know, well, what, when people say, well, what do you do to say, I'm a writer, um, I'm an author, I'm doing that. When did you make that switch? Were you thinking about making that switch back then um, when you were living in Corktown, when you were thinking about, you know, what a, what a, a voice, an editorial voice for the LGBTQ community would be in there. Were you thinking then about, you know, okay, it's time for me to change hats and this doing it, this is really my passion? Oh, that's interesting. I guess I, I see the work as all so entwined. Um, that there was never a particular moment. Um, I, I think um, I always aspired to and wanted to be a writer and editor, right? Like that was that was a function um, that I that that was a, a role that I aspired to, and I do think the writer and editor, like I think the editor piece really is about community engagement and about um, being part of a community and helping other voices get out into the world of the community. Um, so in some ways when I say writer-editor, I link those two in the same way that I link writing and different kinds of activism um, mm-hmm. because I think they are one and the same. So I'm not sure there was a particular moment when I said, yes, and now I'm a writer. Um, uh, you know, and I rarely even say that now, right? I, I sort of think of myself as doing work in the world um, that I hope is going to make a difference and that is always a process, right? Like I'm always kind of practicing and thinking about um, what, am I, what, am I, what am I doing now? How can I make what I'm doing now um, better and a thing that serves us in some kind of way in the world? Um, so, yeah, there was never a, a sort of point where, you know, I was like, yes, and now I'm a writer, or now I'm this or that. I think it's always been a process that I've been um, engaged in, in, um, in thinking about you know, what, what contribution am I making. Mm-hmm. Well, I know you've done four collections of poetry. Do you ever have that, that nudge, that strong urge to be up there on stage in the spotlight reading and performing your poetry or do you go back and revisit it and then like say, Oh, I can make this a little bit better. I mean, your poetry, how did that, how does that work in your life? Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, I have to say when I do read, there are times and in my reading copies of my books, there are, there are a couple. There are some little edits that I tend to read, mm-hmm. that I tend to use when I read. That um, if the books, you know, go into different editions or whatever, I will changes I will make. So, I think a poem is always 
um, up for being edited, always um, under consideration um, for tweaks and changes to it. Um, but I don't often, you know, so when I do do readings, I read from the books, um, mm-hmm. but I don't often kind of go back and think about what I would change there, in part because I feel so um, fueled and compelled by new work um, that I'm working on. So, you know, I have two, um, two manuscripts that I'm poking away at right now that deal with ideas and language in really different ways than any of the earlier books. And um, that's the work that's really gripping and compelling me right now. Um, and, you know, there's only there's limited time in the day. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm always, I tend mm-hmm. to be thinking more about, like, what's the new work and how can I really um, attend to that? And um, the, the, the previous work... Um, sits sits there on the page, you know, and sometimes I read it and I think, oh, I wish I had done this better. Um, but I hope that it forgives me and says <laughs> the best I did at that moment. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, because yeah, I write poetry too, and, you know, and for a while, you know, like some of it, it, it's just like a part of you. Then I would find that people would say, oh, well, we want you to do it and okay, you're on the stage with slam poets. And then right. lately, it's like, oh, well, you do spoken word. I'm going like, oh, do I? <laughs> you know, and, and now that, you know, what I do is different than being a slam poet. It's kind of different than spoken word. It's kind of different than, than, you know, traditional poetry. When you look at what you're doing, do you have, do you find yourself locked into a style or do you find yourself feeding from all these different things that you're hearing that of a expression of these these feelings this human condition yeah um you know i really find that i'm fueled by all the exciting different things people are doing in the poetry world now um i yeah, there's so many slam poets or people who came out of slam poetry communities that I deeply admire um, the work that they're doing. I think that I don't necessarily have that performative aesthetic. Um, One of the things that I think so wonderful about slam poetry is the way that it um, feeds people's creativity, right? That there's such a dynamic interaction between what they're what they're writing and what they're performing and the audience um, mm-hmm. that it seems to all be um, a part of one and to feed itself um, so powerfully um, I deeply admire that uh, although it's generally not my um, there are elements of that that I use in my work or elements of things that I think are performative um, that appear in my work um, but I think I'm I'm a more quiet poet than mm. um, a lot of the performance poets that I really admire um, and and I think one of the challenges you know that all poets kind of experience is this question of audience and thinking about who are we writing for and um, and and a part of the work is always there's always an ideal audience in mind, but there is also 
always the sense of, um, I'll call it the muse, of just mm-hmm. you know, wanting to satisfy one's own sort of fierce sense of what needs to be said. Um, and and that's what I'm, uh, that's, that to me is what I have the greatest allegiance to, more than any any school or formation of different poets out in the world. I'm interested in am I satisfying am I satisfying my muse? Am I doing what am I doing the best work that I can? Mm-hmm. You know, I can recall once you remember the Detroit Women's Coffee House, and I can yeah. recall doing something and. When I wrote it, it was from the perspective of a young black woman, single parent, and those things and those challenges. And then afterwards, having a woman who was talking, who came and she said, you know what, I felt that. And she was talking about before, I want to say like, you know, I mean, she was a a totally different generation. She was white, she was suburban, and had been at a time when her husband, I mean, also, oh, and I forgot to add the queer part in. Okay, it had been at a time when her husband had been away, and here she was dealing with this child, and she said, and you know what, when you said that, I felt that. And it was like, to me, when I write poetry and the beauty, when I read other people's poetry, because I've read other people's poetry at events, when it has that thing where it, it just like transcends time and space and race and gender, and it just sort of grabs you right there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the most, uh, you know, one of the most arresting experiences I've had is people have have emailed me and talked to me about teaching different poems of mine to to classes, either in creative writing classes or community workshops or whatever. And they'll describe, you know, being in a class or a workshop that's primarily people who identify as heterosexual. And the thing, and, and it's so interesting to me because, you know, my imagined audience is never straight people. Right. My imagined audience is always some kind of world of queer people. Um, and it's amazing to me how the how the work connects um, outside of my imagined audience and how it connects in different ways that I never imagined possible. So, you know, early work of mine sort of joking about marriage now has mm. these wildly different meanings to predominantly heterosexual audiences and um and that it i just find that profoundly arresting in in beautiful exciting ways like things that i wrote 15 years ago that i could never have imagined the world that we live in today and there are those poems traveling around in the world to an audience i would have never imagined mm-hmm. wow so so the Lambda Literary Award for Lesbian Poetry. Was yeah. that like, I mean, you know, I mean, you were also, at, well, in 2012, you were a finalist, but in 2017, as the editor of the Complete Works of Pat Parker, it won it. How, what was that, what was that like? Was that, was it like the icing on the cake? Did it give you a sense of validation? 
Was it something you even aspired to as you were doing both pieces? Yeah, you know, it's, it's so it's so it's so awesome, and it's so. Um, I mean, I think you know, first and foremost, the awards really for for Pat Parker, who's you know mm-hmm. has now um, been gone from us for um, twenty eight years, and um, she died the year before the Lambda Literary Awards started, mm-hmm. um, and. Her work and and her work had really had fallen out of print um, for nearly a decade, for over a decade, and um, it's just been so great to have it back in print and circulating, mm-hmm. and people talking and writing about it. So so I did feel like like that was the real, that was the mission of the book, and it was just a year ago now that. Um, I was sending out the first copies, and they were going to Sinister Wisdom subscribers, and, you know, we were fulfilling bookstore orders and all kinds of things. And um, and that felt like the big achievement, like getting that work back into print, putting her back into contemporary poetry conversations. Did you Did you get any pushback? You know, I mean... It is important that she that she came in, but did you get any pushback because she was an African American poet? But did you have like some people going like you know, well, like maybe why were you why you or was it yeah. people were so glad to have her work back and out there and somebody doing this because a lot of people will always go well you know. We know about it, but no one ever steps up and does the work, and it is work. Yeah, it was. Yeah, there was a lot of work in in getting that volume together. You know, when um, my my original vision, uh, Sinister Wisdom started this Sapphic Classic series, and and the and the first book we published was Minnie Bruce Pratt's Crime Against Nature. And even as we were putting that book together and, and that was going into press, I knew that I wanted Pat Parker to be a part of the Sapphic Classic series. And, the you know, my original vision really was that I'll publish it as a part of the series and I will find somebody to edit the work and ideally an African-American woman who will who would be interested in editing the work and working on it. Um, and I, I did talk to a number of people um, about undertaking the editorial project, um, most of whom said that's a huge project. Mm. Um, I, I don't have – and I talked to both African-American women and other women of color. Um, and, you know, I think people were interested, but it was also – but it, it was – it was a big project, and um, we didn't have any money to compensate um, an editor. Um, and then in the process of that, I, was, I also started talking to um, Parker's partner when she died and mm-hmm. the, other, the co-parent of her literary executor cause, because, of course, they control the rights. And, um, and so I was talking with them about the possibility of doing the project and um, and thinking about it. And, and I think then it sort of, so it was very much on my mind at the beginning of, of um, that, that 
having an African-American woman edit the collection, an African-American lesbian, um, would be ideal. Um, and then it, and then through the process of talking to Parker's heirs um, and working with them, because I not only um, edited the work, I also worked with them. There were a number of boxes of archival material from Parker's writing life that were placed at the Schlesinger Library at Harvard University. Um, and I worked with the family on on um, making on making that happen for Parker's legacy. Um, it was through that process that I that I sort of that I thought to myself maybe I should edit this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I you know I spent the time you know researching it and putting it together. Um, my greatest hope is that there will be multiple. You know I think that there's other editorial projects and there's lots of work. Um, that can be done on Pat Parker's work. So I feel like there's space for lots of different voices and different types of editorial um, hands uh, to be involved in that work. Um, and, I, you know, I'm glad I did, I'm glad I did the, the volume that I did, mm-hmm. and I hope other people um, do other work in relationship to Parker because I think she's enormously influential to feminists, queer, African-American literature and art during the 70s and 80s and 90s. Did you you feel her? You know, like as you were reading it and going through all of this stuff, I mean, that's kind of intimate. You know what I mean? There's an intimacy that you have as you're going through it. Did you sort of feel her? And like you said, you know that other things are going, but it was like almost like you were being the gatekeeper and once you opened the gate so that all these other things would come through that you hoped that as others became more more familiar with her that then they would do more work on it yeah you know one of the, so so two things related to the project i mean the the complete works has a substantial amount of previously unpublished work um and you know, there's always a debate about um, publishing work that writers didn't publish themselves. Um, there have been huge controversies about the poems of Elizabeth Bishop that appeared um, after her death that she never published herself. Um, and people feeling, you know, like maybe that diminishes Bishop's work because um, she only published 100 poems while she was alive. Um, and I thought about that a lot with Parker, and I think that's one of the places where I really, um, I, I don't know that I felt her, but I felt the the pressure, and I, you know, wondering, would would she have published these? How would she have edited them or changed them? Because Parker was very much a tinkerer with her poems, um, changing changing them through performance, through different typewritten iterations of them, and then through different print versions of them. Um, I, you know, I thought I, I thought a lot about that, and 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 thinking, how do I pre- how do, how do I present the the best view of Parker to the world, um, and and really um, be honest to who she was as a poet and a person. So I felt that very strongly. I also felt her presence. There's a, a new book that's will be coming out in February of next year that are the letters between Pat Parker and Audre Lorde. 
Mm. Um, Park. Parker and Lord had a correspondence for 15 years from 1974 until um, 1989 when Parker died. Um, And I put together all of those letters in a collection that's titled Sister Love, um, which will be available in February. And I really felt her voice. I mean, you know, letters between writers are so intimate. Um, And I really felt her voice and her presence in putting together those letters, especially because, you know, it was a relationship with so much, there was an extraordinary amount of affection and friendship. Um, And there was also conflict between the two of them. Um, You know, sometimes Lord would treat Parker as like a younger sister. Mm. And, you know, Parker, this big butch lesbian chafed at that (laughs) in ways Uh that you can just imagine. Um, And all of that is there in those letters. Um, And so I really felt um, her presence in that way. Um, And then just one other, you know, small story. Parker, too, loved her dogs. (laughs) <laughs> and had a number of big dogs and dogs that were just deeply devoted to her and um i really like i really feel i really have felt like her presence um when i like there's a picture in the book of her with her german shepherd um and sometimes you know when i'm out with my dogs um walking them or whatever that's when i feel I don't know, like I, I feel her presence around then. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Well, we're going to take our first break. Um, if you're just joining us, I am speaking with Julie Enzer. Uh, she is the goddess of Sinister Wisdom, which we're going to talk a little bit more about in our our next segment. This is Collections by Michelle Brown, and we will be right back. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. We're back with scholar and poet Julie Enzer. Julie, sinister wisdom. I mean, it has been, if it weren't there, and I know that you do, um, would things like the complete works of Pat Parker, some of the other things that have come out, some of the artists that, that have been featured in sinister wisdom, you didn't if that publication wasn't there is there any other place that that would have happened or you know it's why sinister wisdom how did you become involved with that 
Yeah. So, you know, I started editing Sinister Wisdom in 2010. Um, I had edited a special issue um, under the previous editor, Fran Day, and it was called Lesbian Poetry When and Now, and I asked writers and poets to, to send me a poem of theirs paired with a poet, paired with a poem from a lesbian poet of yore is the exact language I've, I use, like <laughs> basically from some earlier time. Uh-huh. Um, and, and, and one of the poets, a, a lovely poet whose first novel just came out, um, S.J. Sindhu, her novel, uh, her new novel is called Marriage of a Thousand Lies, and it's wonderful. And she uh, sent me two poems. I believe paired with a poem of Pat Parker's, and that's how I originally got in touch with the um, Parker heirs and started talking to them. Is because um, Sindhu's we published Sindhu's poem, and I needed permission to publish the Parker poems. Um, so that was in two. I think in two thousand nine was when I was really putting that collection together, and um, and it was at that point that Fran Day um, was was quite ill, and she was looking for another uh, editor to take on the journal. And I like to joke that she asked everybody else, every other lesbian on the planet who was way more qualified than I was <laughs> to do the journal, and they all said no. And so there I was, the lesbian of last choice. And, you know, I agreed to do it, not quite, not knowing you know, how, where the funding, where money came from for publishing the journal or any of these sort of logistical things. But I just knew that Sinister Wisdom had to continue and that there was, there was a legacy here that was really important to preserve and that there was and would always be a need for a journal of lesbian literature and culture. And... Um, you know, that started the journey. So it's been seven years now. Um, and and I feel like as in most publishing and editing things, I've, I'm, I, I understand a little bit more of what's going on uh, in how to make the journal happen. And I understand why it's important. And, and that gets to the other part of your question, which is a part of why Sinister Wisdom is so important. We publish quarterly, so four issues a year. We do the Sapphic Classic series, which are part of the um, subscription to the journal. And they, the amazing thing about doing a journal like that is, is that I get to continue a history and a past of what lesbian literature and lesbian literary arts have been about and connect that past with the future. Um, and I think that both the past and the future for lesbians, as for all kinds of different communities in the world are hugely different and, and filled with conflict and strife. You know, um, nobody ever wants to be the same as what their parents were. Mm-hmm. Um, and grandparents are always looking at grandchildren and saying, you know, kids these days. Um, and it's very similar in lesbian communities, but we have this moment with each issue of Sinister Wisdom of carrying a past and imagining a new and unruly future and bringing those all together in conversation every quarter. And that's what I'm trying to do with the journal. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, uh, it's interesting because sometimes when we're in 
women's space. And you'll talk about, in fact, I was telling someone I was going to do this thing on Sinister Wisdom, and I told them it was like, uh, you know, it, it covered being writers. And they said, oh, you mean feminist. And I said, I said, I'm sure that there's a vein of feminism throughout, but these are lesbian writers. And I said, and there's some part about the, the lesbian community that we don't want to get totally co-opted into the to- whole, we lose something if we just sort of fall under that umbrella of feminist and not talk about our community. What is it that you see the vibrancy and supporting the, the lesbian community and I'm sure that there are other people who would say, you know what, well, you know, you've been doing this for all these years and it's a nonprofit. Why don't you just like roll it into this and open it up and let everybody do it and maybe you get a, a broader audience and it would be easier. Just let, if they're women, just let, you know, as long as they're, they're good, strong, dyed-in-the-world feminists, let them do it. Yeah, you know, I mean, this these, the boundaries, right? Like this is the this is a huge part of what our our thinking and our lives are about is negotiating these boundaries around lesbian, feminist, queer, um, and what does it all mean? And um, I don't have all the I don't have answers to to all of the ways that we negotiate those boundaries. Um, but you know when. About two or three years ago, I was looking at and thinking, is that we, um, two or three years ago, uh, the person who was our administrative manager for the magazine, who did, who deposited all of the checks and paid the bills and made all of that kind of stuff happen, she was no longer able to do that. So I was poking around for uh, different people to help me in that process. And lots of people said, oh, just give the operations to X, Y, or Z organization and let them do it. And then you can be a part of that. And there was, there was no solution that was satisfying to that because Sinister Wisdom, as, as I imagine her, deeply wants to be independent and be her own thing and define her own way. And I think that that's, that's a part of the legacy of the journal that I, that I want to keep up. And so, you know, yes, there are strands in it that are feminist. And yes, there are strands in it that are queer. And yes, they're all coming together in new and interesting ways. Um, and the thing that we hold to is a particular type of independence and the need that to have things that are focused on lesbians um, and that say, you know, we are lesbian and this is important and we are exploring why that's important and how that's important and how we express that today. Mm-hmm. And there aren't a lot of spaces that do that. Mm-hmm. People who come in and, you know, this. I also heard the other part, you know, it's like, everyone wants to say queer. Somebody just say lesbian. But in our, as our community is becoming diverse, you know, to accept and understand that some people who aren't saying that they aren't lesbian, but they prefer to use queer. Mm-hmm. Do you find that? I mean, because I know that you talk about the diversity of our community, and that's part of the diversity, you know, of it. How do you reach out? I mean, cast that broader net to 
to bring in these diverse experiences, but stay true to what your what your vision and your mission is of sinister wisdom. Right. So I think two. I, I have two responses to that. You know, first is just a real kind of material basic. How one of the ways that the journal always works to reach new diverse audiences of writers and readers is by having guest editors. Um, And a big part of what my role is, is lining up guest editors. And sometimes it's one person who edits an issue, as in our new issue, which was edited by Tara Shea Burke. Sometimes it's partnerships. Our issue coming out in January, which is called Black Lesbians, We Are the Revolution, was edited by J.P. Howard and Amber Atiyah. They did it together. Sometimes we have collectives. Um, there was a six-person collective that edited the issue on the Michigan Women's Music Festival. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the real conscious ways that the journal works to get diverse voices is by um, having having different editors for different issues and giving people autonomy within their issue to curate and edit voices that they think need to be a part of what sinister wisdom is. So that's that's one piece. And then the other piece is, you know, and, and, and obviously one of the w- things that I do is try to recruit um, women of all ages, all races, with different diverse life experiences to be a part of the editorship of the journal. Um, and then the other piece that I just like to always remind us of is I feel like the nature of what lesbian means and how women identify with it is always contested and always in conversation. I mean, I remember in early organizing of um, with affirmations in 1990 and 1991, listening to women say, I don't identify with the word lesbian of all, at all. I'm a gay woman. I'll always be a gay woman. I'm never going to use the L word. Well, a woman on the other side of the room says, I don't identify with gay at all. I'm a lesbian, and that's it. Um, and, and all kinds of responses in relationship to that. I mean, I know women who don't identify as lesbian. They call themselves dykes. Uh, mm-hmm. Women who, you know, identify just as butch or as femme. Um, I feel like what we call ourselves and how we try to express the complex relationship between and among sex, gender, and sexuality in our lives is incredibly personal, and we're always looking for new language to try and express what that is. Um, And right now we're in a moment where a younger generation is identifying more as queer than using the word lesbian, and that's a new Uh, and another part of our ongoing conversation of what language and labels will we use to talk about how sex, gender, and sexuality work in our lives. And, you know, Sinister Wisdom has historically stakes in the word lesbian, um, and so we continue to use that in different ways, and women continue to bring into the conversation about lesbian a variety of other words that work to express how they experience their identities. Now, I know that there's this commitment that you provide free subscriptions to women who are incarcerated and 
I, I, you know, just something about mental institutions, just like, ah, you know, but <laughs> it is what it is. Um, yeah. How, how does that work? I mean, has it been an easy fix to get into? I know women, lesbians who work in corrections and they talk about not only are they sort of like, you know, some of them live like closeted because, you know, sometimes, as this woman told me, someone who she might see in the club on Saturday might be before her being incarcerated on it. But then there's also this part to about their sexuality of the people who are incarcerated. How did it come that, you know, that you were able to get this publication into prisons, mental institutions that are, you know, to build a sense of community where otherwise maybe a lesbian community isn't lifted up, isn't supported. Right, right. So this is a long-term commitment of, of the journal. Um, and it start, and from the very beginning in, the 19, in 1976 when the journal started, um, the founders said they would mail them free to women who were incarcerated. Um, and then it was Adrian Rich and Michelle Cliff that added um, that they would mail them free to women who were in uh, mental institutions or other sort of medical or psychiatric institutions. And that language has changed um, over, mm-hmm. you know, over the years. And and I totally agree with you. It's like a it's a it's a diff, it's difficult to find the right language that feels like it is respectful of women um, uh, having those experiences, in part because we know um, that often women are not respected in those institutions. Um, and the, the, the simple part of it, the simple logistics are any woman who writes to Sinister Wisdom and says that she wants to receive the journal for free, we send it out to her. Mm-hmm. So that's the simple part of it. I get letters, usually um, five to eight letters from women who are incarcerated a month asking to be put on the mailing list. I put them on. Um, we give everyone a one-year subscription, and then they can, they can renew as often as they want, um, as long as they are in prison. Um, we've sent, we, there's been a couple women I've corresponded with that we've sent the journal to them the whole time they were incarcerated, and then they've written letters to me after they got out. Um, and, and we also have a sliding scale sub, uh, subscription rate. So any amount that someone can give, we recognize as a subscription. Um, and some women, incarcerated women have continued subscribing after they've left prison. So that's kind of, that, you know, to be totally honest, Michelle, that's the, the easy, happy picture of it. Mm-hmm. As you suggest in your question, there's lots of struggles. Um, I get returned issues from prisons at different times in, where the screening process has been, um, you know, a guard has screened the journal and found offensive images or things that they find too sexual. I get these letters often, um, most recently from the Texas Department of Corrections, where they'll like mm. give me the pages that are sexually inappropriate and would titillate. They literally use the word titillate <laughs> prisoners. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you know, I think we publish some really sexy, sexy photos and sexy images in the journal. Um, I'm not sure that I would say they're there to titillate readers, you know, but um, 
We, you know, we get, we get books returned. Um, often if I'm working with a student or I have somebody who can investigate, like we will read, we'll read the um, local or state code of what can go into the prison and try to get um, an issue that will comply for the woman who's requested it. I've had, um, as much as it breaks my heart to um, take razor blades and pull out pages of the journal. We've done that a couple times to resend them to women mm-hmm. in prison. Um, there's all sorts of different rules and regulations that govern the overall um, criminal justice system. And sometimes, you know, I don't have somebody to help me, and and it's and it's too much, and there's not. I don't have the time to figure out how to get a woman her copy of the journal, and so I know sometimes our subscribers miss out on them um, because it really is uh, a system of control of people's bodies and minds um, in ways meant to really dehumanize them. Um, so we do everything we can to to get their issues to them, um, knowing that they're really living under difficult um, and painful circumstances. And, you know, it seems like to me, much of the writing and the things that that I've read, if anything, it humanizes you. It gives that voice. And like you said, to go from here it is, you would want, you would think that the ideal is not to break someone's humanity, you know, Mm -hmm. while they're in this situation, but it's to help them reclaim and do it and to say, okay, well, you have to cut this out, do this and that, you know, here's a, a something that helps, a lifeline almost. Have you ever received submissions for Sinister Wisdom from someone who's in one of these situations? Oh, absolutely. We've published a fair amount of um, work by prisoners. Um, we've done a whole issue, uh, issue number 61, which was a number of years ago now, but was all writing by um currently incarcerated or formerly incarcerated women um and i do i do get submissions um and you know when it's work that i think really will speak to either a theme of a volume or an open issue i try to include um writing by incarcerated women as often as possible mm-hmm. so sister wisdom is it you know okay you're writing you're being a a dog mom, <laughs> you're moving. Is it just you? Do you have a board who's who's working with you? Yeah, so there's eight members of our board of directors. We meet twice mm-hmm. a year. Mm-hmm. Um, I, so, and, and Sinister Wisdom, you know, it, she, she grows her own community around her. Mm-hmm. Um, I had, like, there's a part of me that is like, I don't want to give personhood to this organization, but I do feel like she grows a community around her. So there's a board of directors that works on it. Um, there are, there's this whole community of people who, are, who have and are in the future guest editing issues of the journal. Um, lots of people are stepping up to do that, and they usually grow their own little community to help them do it, of writers and contributors. Um, but also people step forward to proofread all of the time, to help with different projects. Um, there's a woman who works with me here in the office in Florida who handles all of our mailing, um, mm-hmm. which has been 
just amazing for me because um, because I do all the work on Sinister Wisdom as a volunteer and to not have to go to the post office twice a week um, and to know that she packages every package so well. Nothing falls out in the mail anymore because, you know, I was like licking <laughs> it and shutting things and not taping things properly. And she's like, no, Julie, you know, this is how you have to do it. Um, so that's Cassandra. Um, there's other people who just rise up to do um, different tasks for the journal at different times. So she really grows herself a community of people who believe in it, um, both in terms of providing the um, labor, physical labor, intellectual labor, creative labor to making the journal happen, and um, to donating money to make it happen. Um, we're doing our fall fundraising campaign, and I'm every day when I go um, to the mail, I am amazed by women sending in checks um, to keep the journal going, people renewing their subscriptions, um, and just you know holding up the work, saying keep doing this. Um, so she, I don't know, she again. I'm not sure about the the personification of a magazine, but I feel like in Sinister Wisdom is her own person, and I, you know, orchestrate some things, and she just brings women all around her. Well, you know, I I love it every time I, when you when I first hit me when you as I we've been talking you said she she and I said it was like I just smiled, you know, that that, that sinister wisdom is she and her and and her and it is it's sort of like it's not that that sort of like stayed you know x many pages of advertising x many pages of of editorial because you know i've worked at 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 publications where it it isn't it doesn't have a heart it this has a soul i mean and that's what i think it's so beautiful about it i love to hear you do that i have a question okay Mm -hmm. my sister was by and she mm-hmm. saw a copy of Sinister Wisdom was, and she picked it up and she said, what's this about? <laughs> How did the name Sinister Wisdom come about? Because, you know, I think that from her, and I was trying to explain to her, and she said, well, that's not at all what I thought about, or thought it would be. And I said, well, why? She said, well, it's Sinister. Well, Sinister, you know, she went by that, that very literal connotation of Sinister. How did this name come about? Uh, so it comes from a line by Joanna Russ, which a place on the word sinister is actually from a Latin word, which means to the left. Um, so it's really about wisdom that is to the left. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the, that's, uh, and it's from a, a Joanna Russ line, which I don't have in front of me right now. Um, but it is in the the very first notes for a magazine from the first issue of the journal, mm-hmm. which is online mm-hmm. with all of our archives mm-hmm. at sinisterwisdom.org slash archive um, so people can go and read it. And so it really it refers to wisdom coming from the left. Mm-hmm. And for um, Harriet Des Moines and Catherine Nicholson, who were the founding editors, they loved this Joanna Russ line. And they also loved the image of the idea of knowledge coming from the left, and it also had a a, a witchy um, mm-hmm. Wiccan association with it as well. Um, so it has all of those 
different resonances um, in in the title of the journal. I like that. I like that. Yeah. We're going to take another break, and then I want to talk about the current fundraising drive. So we are talking about Sinister Wisdom with Julie Enzer, and we will be right back. You're listening to Collections by Michelle Brown. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. back with Julie and sir. Okay, folks, I know you're getting towards the end of the year and you've got that checkbook out and you're trying to think about before they take away our tax deduction for charitable contributions, Sinister Wisdom is a 501c3, um, which means it's a nonprofit organization. And Julie, you're saying that, you know, you do what you do as a volunteer. You're not raking in huge advertising dollars. You're not, you know, doing a pitch. You're going to our community, our community of lesbians. Although, you know, if you're a gay guy and you want to buy, you want to subscribe, we'll take it too. Tell Mm -hmm. us, what does, what's it look like to do a sinister wisdom, to make this happen four times a year. You've already talked about the mailings. What's it, what's it take to make this happen? The people and everything. So, you know, the, um, there's a variety of things that go into making the organization work and making everything happen. And um, we're all volunteer labor, um, including volunteer labor from the writers, right? And one of the things that I am trying to do is grow the organization a bit because it would be fantastic to pay writers for their contribution. Um, even a small amount, I know, makes a huge difference, um, particularly for writers just starting out um, in their careers to have the work validated in that way. So that's one thing that we're talking about organizationally. But really our biggest bills are um, printing and binding to create the book um, and then postage. Even mailing media mail, um, we, we, have, we, we spend a lot of money with the U.S. Postal Service getting the journal out there. So for each issue of the journal, it costs us about $6,000 when all things are said and done to go to press, print the journal, and get it out to all of our subscribers and then to people who order it online or become subscribers later on. 
Um, and then we have some small uh, different office expenses. I've actually pared down some expenses. Last year, we, I moved our archive of back issues. We had 10,000 copies of back issues of the journal in storage in Berkeley, California, where our last administrator lived. Hard copies, yes. Wow, wow. And, you know, talking about, you know, she brings out the people that you need. A dear friend of mine, um, you know, who I, I it was going out to the Bay Area um, to make this move happen. Um, we moved everything through. Um, we moved everything ourselves, loaded it up, and then shipped it across country and uh, using U-Haul. And... Um, you know, my friend was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to help you do this. And she spent, you know, it took us like six hours to get all the boxes taped up and everything and loaded into these U-Haul U-boxes and then shipped across country. So 10,000 books, um, total weighed about 8,000 pounds that we shipped wow. across country. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this past summer I had a full-time student intern and we did a whole campaign um, to get these back issues out into the world, um, we've been um, giving them for the price of for the price of our postage to ship them out. We've been shipping them to community gay and lesbian community centers, women's centers, um, different centers at colleges and universities. Um, they've gone to an array of different groups, and then we've also been packaging different back issues of the journal um, up and under different themes. We did a Dump Trump collection. Mm. We had a collection for coming out. Um, we have a Woman of Color collection. So we've had a variety of different collections of back issues, and we've distributed about four or 5,000 copies of those back issues. Um, so I still have up in the... Um, attic of the of my office another 6000 that we hope we're going to get out more over this next year um, but the process of moving things ac- across country and getting them into my house saved us $250 a month from the um, mm-hmm. storage fees so i'm i'm always kind of looking for ways um, of not just how can we save money, but really how can we put all of our resources into amplifying lesbian voices and give as few resources as possible to supporting the patriarchy. Mm-hmm. So that was the kind of moving decision is um, we could save money and put that money to amplify women's voices. So four issues a year, um, the bulk of our money goes to um, postage, paper, printing, um, and then different promotional things that we do. Lots of our subscribers are all abuzz. And Michelle, I realize I need to probably send you one. We have a great new sew-on patch that went out with Sinister Wisdom 106 on the theme of the lesbian body. And it says, Lesbian, a badge of honor. And then I have that patch. I, Do you? Excellent. Yes, I have that patch. <laughs> yes. It yes. came with my issue. Yeah, I have that patch. I think that's, uh, yeah, and, and it did. It just sort of tickled, tickled me. To, I mean, look at this. This is so cool. You know, I haven't seen yep. what I'm going to put it on, but I'm going to put it on something where I can use it often. 
Um, Excellent. Excellent. So that's, you know, what our, what our daily operation really looks like is what can we do that is going to delight um, lesbians around the country and encourage people to subscribe. So basic subscriptions are $34, um, two years for $55, which is really a bargain. Um, and then we every year do a fall fundraising campaign. Um, this year I have a gorgeous poster um, that looks, that's a lesbian bomb poster <laughs> that has the names of every single contributor to Sinister Wisdom from Sinister Wisdom 1 to Sinister Wisdom 75, all scrolled around in the center of it, creating the bomb. Mm-hmm. Um, you folks can see it online. It's really quite beautiful. Um, and that's that's if people want to give $100, we'll send them a full year uh, subscription to Sinister Wisdom and the Lesbian Bomb poster. Mm-hmm. Anybody who subscribes between now um, and the end of the year will get the Lesbian Body uh, issue, issue number 106, along with the Lesbian Badge, Lesbian, a Badge of Honor. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, that's what our life, that's what the Sinister Wisdom Life looks like. What can we do to delight and inspire lesbian literary art and culture? Um, and how can we bring more of it into the world? You know, are you collecting, you know, as you're planning the issues, how long does it take to actually from the last issue to the next one to put it all together? Or are you constantly in some version of production mode? I'm always in some version of production mode. Um, I try actually to work. So this week, um, I've been working on fi- this week, um, which I'm not sure when this is going to air, but we're talking the week of Halloween. Mm-hmm. And this week I'm finalizing corrections to our January issue, which we hope will go off to the printer next week. Um, and I also just have been working on the cover design for our April issue and am getting all of the text together to send to the designer for the April issue. Um, and I'm expecting to have the final copy for the July issue in hand in about four or five weeks. Wow. Um, so we'll start getting that ready. So it's a constant. Um, there's never a point where I where I finish one issue and I get a little break before I turn to the next issue. Um, I'm always uh, working in different phases of productions for the issues. Um, and that's part of what, you know, doing a quarterly publication entails, that kind of planning in advance. Um, But again, it's not all me, right? I work with amazing guest editors. We have a graphic designer who does amazing work. The journal is beautifully designed. Um, I work with a fantastic printer that I think that really um, creates something that's lovely to behold, um, and, you know, that's one of the things I think of as Sinister Wisdom giving to lesbians every three months is something that is beautiful and that reflects who they are, right, so that we can see beauty in lesbian lives and lesbian bodies, which are so often deemed not beautiful and vilified in this world. No, that's what I will say. They are always, I always find them beautiful, you know. Okay, how has... 
doing this sinister wisdom, you know, and it's like sort of always in production, but you're also writing and doing your thing. Has it helped you be like, oh, wow, okay, I have to put this amount of time with sinister wisdom, and then this is this amount of time for Julie, and this is the amount of time for dogs. I mean, you know, how do you, how do you juggle all this? Yeah, and, you know, I work, too. I work nearly <laughs> full time. How, you know, one, I, I, do, I do thrive creatively by having multiple projects. Um, and I do think that that um, I'm fortunate in that all the work I do feeds feeds each other, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, one of the reasons why I love Sinister Wisdom and why I'm committed to doing it is I think that it is work that gives a context to the writing that I'm doing. Um, we talked earlier in the interview about you know, the complete works of Pat Parker. And one of the things that Sinister Wisdom Publishing the Quarterly Journal does is give context to lesbian poetry, both historically and in the future. Um, And so I think of the journal as giving context to my own writing. Um, And and so that in that way, you know, it sustains me uh, to know that the, the journal that I'm producing is in the future giving context to the future writing that I'll be doing. Um, you know, and things things do go cyclically too. You know, I like all writers, I'll have more fallow periods and then I'll have, you know, creative bursts and um and somehow I just juggle and manage it. Ideally, one day we're all going to be sitting down there in Florida with our fruity drinks watching the dogs play and being happy, okay? Where do you see the future of Sinister Wisdom? Do you see a younger writer? Do you see younger volunteers starting to come in and being involved? Or is that also, besides asking them to give their, you know, to to do that subscription, that there is a way that they can find out more about Sinister Wisdom plug in and maybe be sealing those envelopes or whatever in the future. Absolutely. So, you know, there's a variety of ways people can plug in. Lots are outlined on our website, sinisterwisdom.org. I'm always... Uh, I, I'm always inviting people to consider interning. We've had great interns over the past year, and I want to keep that door open for students who are undergraduates or in graduate school looking for either summer internships or internships during the year. I've worked with people who've come down and been based in Florida for a couple months, and I worked with people virtually, so I'm open to a variety of options that way. Um, The editorship of Sinister Wisdom has always passed around from editor to editor, Um, and I certainly have no um, illusion that I will edit the journal forever. I'm not um, planning to pass along the editorship at any time in the future, Um, but I do, and I'm looking right now, I have two copies of every issue of the journal that has published on my bookshelf. And Mm -hmm. my plan is at some point uh, one of those copies is going to go to the next editor so that she has a full set of the journals um, that she can look over as she is editing the journal and doing things in her way. Um, 
So there, and there's a variety of ways that people can be engaged now. One is we're always open for submissions. So I encourage everybody who's a writer to look at send us contributions. We're always reading for them. We have special calls um, for different thematic issues, but we are not bound by theme. We always have open issues that circulate in, so that's always open to folks. We, we love getting new subscribers. Um, again, $34 for a one-year subscription, $55 for a two-year subscription in the United States, slightly higher for outside the United States to cover international postage. We love it when people donate. As you said, Michelle, we are a 501c3 organization. People can give online at sinisterwisdom.org. Um, they can also send checks through the mail, and the mailing address is online. We accept money in any way that people want to give it to us. <laughs> um, so there's, a, you know, there's lots of ways to plug in. And, and I will say you know, any, any email that people send to us, anything that comes into Sinister Wisdom I see in some way, people can email me, julie at sinisterwisdom.org. Um, they can also sign up for our email newsletter on our website. Any ideas that come, come through in some ways, I see, and I try to be really open and say yes to as many things as possible that people want to do. Um, so as people think of creative ways to lift up Sinister Wisdom and be involved in um, the work of the organization, I really welcome that and um, invite people to send me creative and neat ideas. That's great because she is alive. I mean, she is alive. She's she's yep. growing and changing like we are, you know, just incredible. Well, Julie, I want to thank you for being with us uh, today um, and telling us so much not only about you but also about Sinister Wisdom. So it will it will air after Halloween, but people will still have an opportunity to get in that year-end contribution. Sinister Wisdom to me is, is also like people often talk about, well, what is your legacy? The legacy of the lesbian community is often in our writing. Um, I have a question. Are you going to, is there a, a digital archive from the beginning on? Yes, so um, all issues 1 through 57 are available for download as PDFs for free um, at sinisterwisdom.org slash archive. Um, and then we have other, all of the available issues are avail that are in hard copy for sale are available at sinisterwisdom.org slash issues. Um, and if you have any difficulty or are unclear if we have issues in stock, people can email me. My hope is that as we sell out the rest of the uh, back issues, we will put 58 through 100 um, online for free downloads at some point in the next two or three years. If someone was looking for, if they were looking for particularly the one that was about um, African-American women, you know, uh, yep. lesbians. Okay, so they could go and look at and put in that, that detail to search to like either find the download, the PDF, or if there's a hard copy available, they could do that. Absolutely. Yep. Okay. All right. Well, Okay, I think I've asked all my questions. Julie, I want you to go back and enjoy that beautiful weather. I am Thank sitting you. here sitting here looking at beautiful gold, green and red leaves and and loving Michigan and thinking about you. 
Excellent. Well, I'm thinking about you. I love Michigan, too, and you are in a beautiful time of year there. And Florida is always here for you to visit. Julie, thank you again for being with thank us today. You. Well, we've come to the end of another edition of Collections by Michelle Brown. Today we are talking with Julie R. Enzer, who is the editor of Sinister Wisdom, which is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. This is the time of year when we encourage you to support our community. Great rates on subscriptions, and I'm telling you, I am eyeing that $100 poster with the lesbian bomb. I, I have a place right here in my office for it. I want to thank you for joining us each week here on Collections by Michelle Brown. You can follow the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. That's all for today. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual who's living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of your intersectionality, and creating change. That's right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.